Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Cat. Welcome back. Thank you very much. I had a great time. I'm feeling really refreshed. Uh, I kind of miss France, though it was a furnace over there. Yeah, you said it was really hot. Yeah, it was something like 100 degrees uh, on most days. The sun was like burning me. But at the same time, it was kind of nice and refreshing. I like the sun and the heat more than I like cloudiness and being cool. So I was able to live with it. And of course, the the heat was mitigated by the fact that the U.S. women's national team totally won the World Cup. And I got to be there and watch them. That must have been really fun. Oh, it was amazing. I had a incredible time. Uh, though I gotta say, American fans need to work on being better at being fans. <laughs> American soccer fans, especially American women soccer fans, get out of town. It was like 80-20 American fans compared to the European fans, believe it oh, or not. really? Because there were tons of Americans who knew that the U.S. women would be doing well and uh-huh. care about the U.S. women. And we're like, whoa, wait a minute. I can go watch the U.S. women's team and I can go take a vacation in France? Sold. <laughs> Win-win. Uh, I, I don't want to disparage, like, mothers or anything like that. But it was a lot of, like, older mothers who were bringing their daughters with them, which was very cool. And oh, were, like, going nice. out and uh, having a glass of wine. But at the same time, they're not the most boisterous fans, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. They don't stand up there and start soccer rides, you're telling me? So what needs to, so and Americans don't know how to cheer during a soccer game, so they just kind of sit there. Americans are used to having you know the mascot beating the drum or the scoreboard telling them when they should start cheering. So where the European fans all had their little chants and everything and songs that they knew what to sing or they would clap, they would clap to kind of fill time. Americans just kind of sat there going, "Yup, we're here." <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Simpsons bit with uh, Ken Brockman, like kind of narrating bored out of his mind, and the Brazilian announcer is just like going nuts over like someone passing. I, I mean, sometimes Americans would break out the odd USA chant, but not nearly enough, unfortunately. So my uh, brother goes to see Toronto FC a lot, and he says uh, one of the favorite chants is "I'm blind, I'm deaf, I want to be a ref." So apparently <laughs> they apparently they cause trouble over in, in uh, the Toronto games. I've never been to one myself though. But anyway, yep. Uh, thank you to Ray Barnholt for k- taking care of the podcast while I was gone. It sounds like you guys had a great time talking about franchises that were kick- dragged kicking and screaming into RPG-dom. Yes, for better or for worse. Uh, for every, you know, thousand-year door, there was like 10 Sonic Chronicles. And we, we talked about some of them, including some lesser-known ones. Like, I didn't know there was a, a Samurai Showdown RPG, for example. I learned this just recently because i've been doing research into the like things like the neo geo for the console rpg quest Mm -hmm. and as far as i can tell samurai showdown rpg for the neo geo is the only rpg on that system yeah it was really more of a a shooter slash fighter slash you know system so speaking of the console rpg quest it's not happening this week no we, we got other things to talk about here Yeah, we got a lot to cover this week, specifically the RPGs that we have been playing, the brand new ones, which also means that I, even though I was on vacation last week, I spent all of that time playing Fire Emblem. I did not have a chance to actually play Final Fantasy VII, or, you know, I was out exploring France. (laughs) Yeah, just a small thing there. Imagine, like, having to stay and play, like, Switch all day in your hotel room. That'd be kind of sad. That would have been sad, and thankfully I was not doing it. I was instead having a great time, uh, well, mostly drinking wine and walking around <laughs> Lyon, but anyway, so some things that we're going to cover, we're going to cover Fire Emblem Three Houses, we're going to cover Dragon Quest Builders 2, which Nadia had reviewed over on the site and is now available. There's also a bunch of news to cover, a little bit of housekeeping obviously you can follow me on twitter at the underscore catbot nadia is at nadia oxford make sure to follow us gamer on all of the relevant social media accounts as well and subscribe to our newsletter nadia what is this week's newsletter about well part of the topic is something i think we will cover a bit ourselves i talked about the nintendo switch uh light and what it means for rpgs and i think given how 
how great many RPGs are in the Switch's handheld mode. I think it's going to be really fantastic for RPGs. So if you want to go read that and articles like that, please go and subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the subscription information on the site. And one last thing, if you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to rate and review us on your relevant podcatcher. We love hearing from you. We love hearing reviews. And if you want to comment on the podcast, uh, leave a note in the show notes on the site or send me a DM on Twitter or email me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Okay, Nadia, let's talk about the news. I think the biggest news of the week, Nintendo Switch Lite after months and months of lots of reporting, like everybody knew that it was real, it was going to happen. The only question was what would be the specifics. Mm -hmm. We now know the specifics. It is a smaller, lighter Switch with colors. It cannot dock to the TV, which makes the Switch branding a little bit funny. It's a little bit like... <laughs> it's a non-Switch. Like, it's a little bit like the 2DS in that regard. Yes. And I mean, it has a few differences in the chipset and that kind of thing. So I guess the question to you is, are you going to buy it? Uh, I might. Uh, a lot, of course, depends on, okay, what are my finances at the time? Do I really need one? Because uh, my husband and I don't have a huge problem sharing the Switch as it is. And uh, when I travel, I just take my vanilla Switch with me. But on the other hand, um, my Switch uh, Joy-Cons are completely out of it, pretty much. So I don't know. I just feel like for what it costs to get new Joy-Cons, you know, it might be better just get a, a damn Switch Mini at this point. Switch Lite, rather. I am definitely not buying a Switch Lite because oh, really? I think my... Now, there's no way in hell I'm buying a Switch Lite. I'm perfectly happy with my current Nintendo Switch. When I want to get a updated SKU, I'm thinking bigger rather than smaller because I want a better screen. Uh, having a better screen is like a big thing for me, better performance. If it's merely smaller, that's not enough of a sales point. Now, I understand that there are plenty of people who will find this thing appealing. The colors are pretty. <laughs> colors are very pretty. Um, I could see it definitely being a, a great accompaniment to uh, Sword and Shield, which will be out uh, uh, along soon after the the system comes out. Uh, there's a lot of parents out there who, you know, they want their own Switch, and they want one for their kids, and now 3DS is dead, even though Nintendo says, oh, no, it's, it's, it's fine, it's dead. So <laughs> it, it'll be good to fill that gap. Yeah, at $199, and it's coming out as Pokemon Sword and Shield, Let's be honest. This thing is to sell Pokemon Sword and Shield. This is the push that it's going to get. And you know what? It's going to work. It's so going to work. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a big ticket when uh, holiday season comes around. And when I tweeted, uh, and as I tweeted, uh, in Japan, I, I've talked to a bunch of Japanese people about this. And the consensus seems to be that the current Switch is too big and kind of unwieldy to bring on a train or break out on a train. And I think that has been holding things back slightly. That, I mean, it hasn't impacted sales all that much, but I think Nintendo would like to push the portability aspect in Japan uh, that much more. The domestic market still matters to Japan. And I think that it also wants to turbocharge Sword and Shield uh, sales over there. And so far it's working as far as I can tell. Uh, I was just seeing a note earlier about the pre-order stats over in Japan, and seemingly they're pretty ridiculous. That it has it's six out of the ten in the Japanese Amazon Japan top ten video games, and the Sword and Shield Switch Lite is at number one. Holy crap! And that's a that's a actually a really nice uh, switch right there, the Sword and Shield one. I like that uh, the design and the color for that one. Yeah, uh, we're now entering the period in which new Switch SKUs are going to come out, and they're going to have like little designs and everything. Yes. If a Animal Crossing Switch Lite doesn't come out, I'm going to eat my hat. <laughs> I actually have a friend who has the uh, Animal Crossing 3DS, and it's very cute. has the uh, little pattern on it with the nook leaves and the flowers and stuff. My main hope for the Switch Lite is that it will also bring with it themes when it comes out. Yes, like um, like what you have with the 3DS, basically. Yeah, I, we're we're way overdue for that. We're way overdue for a lot of those kinds of frills with the Switch. Yeah, I would love a... I On my 3DS, I have the Nintendo Hanafuda theme, which is this really oh, nice, nice kind of Japanese-oriented theme with a custom theme song and everything. And 
I really like that theme, and I would very much like to have something similar on the Switch, because as it is, it's a little bit Spartan. It really is. And, uh, like, I have... I'm not a huge theme person, but for, like, I like to have one, at least, that I stick to for a long time. Like, on my PS4, I've had A Night in the Woods for a very long time, and I love that theme. It's just kind of got that really nice aesthetic to it. Anyway, I think the main takeaway with the Switch Lite is that it's there to push Pokemon Sword and Shield, which makes it RPG-relevant, surely. And yes. I think it's going to be entirely successful. In fact, I would not be surprised if Pokemon is one of the biggest selling games of the holiday season. I don't know if it's going to overtake, you know, games like, you know, the traditional juggernauts like Call of Duty, but it's certainly going to be up there. Oh, yeah. it's. Uh, I think it's definitely going to be up there. Okay, moving on from the Switch Lite, a couple of more interesting little nuggets. Uh, the TurboGrafx-16 mini lineup is out. You may recall that we talked about the PC Engine in a couple episodes um, on Blood God. Uh, it has an awesome lineup, Nadia. Uh, it has like 24 English games, 26 Japanese games, including classics like Bomberman 94, mm-hmm. Rondo of Blood, Gradius 2, Games that are not that easy to find over here. No, but you also have Snatcher in Japanese. What the hell am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> I mean, I can't complain that it's there. Well, it's great that it's there, but I can't play it because it's a very tax-heavy game. <laughs> it's like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I guess. To. But, I mean, there's bound to be somebody who speaks fluent Japanese who's like, just be like, I'm so done. That's great for them, but the game's been localized. Why not give us the localized version? Honestly, if the if this version didn't have the Japanese games, if it were just the American side, I would just buy the Japanese side. Mm, that's fair enough. Because I want Rondo Blood, damn it. Yeah, I'm glad Rondo Blood's on there. I know that's they that's also on the Japanese side, but big deal. It doesn't really have a lot of like, you know, English text to decipher in the first place. Just the fact that it's such a uh, shoot 'em up heavy system with games mm-hmm. like Lords of Thunder and Blazing Lasers, and Gradius 1 and 2, and I think also Salamander. Maybe. Salamander's on there, yeah. AKA yeah, Force. Uh, I'm like, oh, sweet, yeah. No, I'm going to get this thing for sure. So Yeah, I'm not a uh, shoot-em-up person, but I could see why someone who was like, really into shoot-em-ups would get this in two seconds. As for the RPG side of things, unfortunately, no Cosmic Fantasy. Uh, nope. You may remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Cosmic Fantasy as one of the kind of underrated series out there. So underrated, in fact, that we completely forgot to talk about it. In <laughs> we our, did. Uh, we kind of skipped over that by accident. But it has a small, if very fervent fan base uh, in Japan and over in the U.S. And it's really pretty and everything kind of Dragon Quest-y. So mm-hmm. it would have been, and it even like came over here at one point. It was localized. So it would have been nice to have seen Cosmic Fantasy 2 be included in the lineup. But alas, that did not happen. And no sign of Far East of Eden either. Uh, as far as yeah. I can tell, the only real RPG representation uh, outside of a couple action-adventure games is Ease and Dungeon Explorer. I'm a little bit disappointed how it seems the only st- of one of these consoles that really embraced its, uh, its RPG heritage so far has been the SNES Mini. Uh, the NES at least had dry, uh, at least had Final Fantasy. At least had that, yeah. That surprised me a bit, but um, didn't have any of the Dragon Quests or anything like that. And um, there's, I did have Star Tropics. Though. I think it would have been a bit mu- much to ask for it to have like Faxanadu or uh, the original Dragon Warrior, just because, especially because the original Dragon Warrior did so poorly over here, and it's a relatively niche thing versus Final Fantasy. Yeah, would have loved to have, like, Dragon Quest 2, 3, and 4 on there. Oh, man, that'd be great. And last thing, uh, this is kind of cool. Uh, Batten Kaito's director, Yasuyuki Hon, uh, is part of the run-up toward a book that kind of collects all of the Iwata Asks columns mm-hmm. from days past, posted some neat Earthbound concepts for the GameCube. I didn't realize that a GameCube version of Earthbound was pitched, but I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's, that's actually very that's a very funny gap in Earthbound's history because um, you had Earthbound 64, which was kind of in development hell for a very long time, and then it just fell off the face of the earth and canceled because it just wasn't coming together properly. And it only resurrected uh, for the Game Boy Advance, but I didn't know that someone had proposed a uh, like a GameCube version in the midst of it all. I did not know either, but, I mean, it makes sense in the grand scheme of things. Uh, 
Earthbound was at least relatively popular over in Japan, and I'm sure that uh, the U.S. or I'm sure Nintendo was desperate for any kind of game. But yeah, if you look at the concepts, I thought it was kind of claymation, but actually, no, it's kind of felt. Oh, is it? I got like when I looked at it, it reminded me more of like claymation, like the uh, the models that they used for the um, strategy guide over here. Uh, no, I think it's more of a stylized felt look, almost like they were going for a kind of a Paper Mario type thing. It was a pretty good-looking game. I liked what they did with it. Yeah, I mean, it was, those were just mock-ups, really. So yeah. those weren't exactly... They were just proof-of-concept kind of things. But I would, I kind of wish that it had actually happened because that would have been a really neat and beautiful GameCube game that would definitely not have come over here and we would have been pining it for it, for it forever. <laughs> I actually wonder if it would have made it here because, God, we were so RPG-starved between that and the N64, just... We We weren't just RPG starved. We were starved for any game at all on the (laughs) GameCube. It's like, hey, you like Metroid Prime? You like Smash Brothers? Oh, that's about it. Yeah, but yeah, go check out that over on the site. Okay, let's move on to our reviews of Dragon Quest Builders 2 and also my impression of Fire Emblem Three Houses. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, we're going to start with Dragon Quest Builders 2, which you reviewed over on the site. You gave it a 4.5 out of 5, I believe. Yes. And you said, Dragon Quest Builders 2 is a quintessential example of a great sequel. It takes everything that's fun about the first game and adds more of the good stuff while removing the mechanics that didn't work the first time around. So why don't you summarize what it does better than Dragon Quest Builders 2, some of the key additions, and if nobody's ever played Dragon Quest Builders, maybe tell us what the heck it is. Well, Dragon Quest Builders is um, kind of a combination between Dragon Quest and Minecraft. It is a game where you do a lot of adventuring and kind of follow a Dragon Quest-y story and meet a lot of characters and stuff, and you build block by block very much in the style of uh, Minecraft, maybe with a little bit more of the titular mines involved. Like, you don't really dig uh, way underground like you do in Minecraft, but there is definitely more structure and more story to Dragon Quest Builders and Dragon Quest Builders 2 than there is uh, to Minecraft, and if you're the kind of person who feels kind of aimless when they play Minecraft, uh, this is the game for you, because I know that I actually enjoy Minecraft quite a bit, but I eventually fall off because I'm like, okay, well, I built this cool cave, now what? Uh, but Dragon Quest Builders 2, what it does over the first game that's really significant is I would say um, it really streamlines a lot of the mechanics that didn't work quite as well for the first game. Uh, one of the biggest changes is now your uh, mallet, which is your, you know, your, your what, I guess in Minecraft you'd refer to it as your pickaxe, it's the, it's the tool you use to break things up. Uh, that's mapped to the ZR button of uh, when your, like, weapon, your sword or whatever, is mapped to a different button, depending if you're playing Switch or PlayStation. And what that means is if you swing your sword in a uh, kind of a closed environment, uh, which is very possible because monsters attack a lot in, in, like, closed environments, you won't be, like, ruining your own constructions. You, like, it won't damage them. And so you're going to be spending a lot less time uh, fixing dumb mistakes that you made or, or damage that you caused. Uh, basically, it does a lot of things to improve those mechanics, just, just the first game's mechanics in general. There's also more of a story. The story is more connected. Uh, there is actually kind of a hub world called the Isle of Awakening, and your job is to populate it and make it green and nice and cool and build really cool things on it. And it's part of the story, whereas uh, you had a similar thing in the first game that wasn't part of the story at all. It was just a, a sandbox for you to go play in. Uh, and the towns, like when you leave a town, you don't lose everything you d- like you did in the first game. You don't. Uh, you you kind of start over again when you do each town, but you can always go back and like with o- with your old materials uh, to a. Uh, sorry, you can always like kind of go back and revisit old towns and still have like new materials from other towns like you can there's a lot more exchange for lack of a better term um whereas the first game the way i described it 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 felt more like 
uh, four separate chapters, like four paragraphs contributing to a final conclusion with the Dragon Lord. And that's not the case here. It really does feel like you got a hub world and you got like your islands that you sail out to. And that's where more of the game's story takes place. And there's bigger islands, which are very story oriented. You have your smaller islands where you kind of do like a scavenger hunt to find more materials, to find like uh, even animals and stuff that you can bring back to your to your central uh, island. It's just there's a lot to do. Uh, there's a lot to build, a lot to see, uh, a lot of cool story, a lot of cool characters. Uh, I, I'm having a really good time with it. I sort of played the original Dragon Quest Builders a little bit, um, uh-huh. and it was kind of cute, but... I've never been much into the kind of Minecrafty builder games. Mm-hmm. Nothing against them; they're just not really my speed. And I mean, Dragon Quest Builders was okay in my memory, but it didn't really do anything to kind of break me out of that mindset. Is there? A, will Will Dragon Quest Builders two change that? Uh, hard to say. I will say in this game, there is a bit more of an emphasis on exploration and fighting versus the first game, but it still might not be enough for you to, to really be like, okay, I'm really, I'm really digging this. Like, I know Mike is, uh, Mike and I are both like big into building games and he's really enjoying it as well. And I know there are a lot of people like me who, who enjoy building games, but don't really like how aimless Minecraft is. And in that case, something like Dragon Quest Builder is really built for us, uh, so to speak. But if you are just not into uh, crafting games, mining games, that sort of thing, uh, I would say, well, since there's like a, a demo of Dragon Quest Builders 2, you, you go ahead and give that a try. But if it's just not clicking with you, then it's just not clicking with you. And, you know, I really hope more people would give it a try because it's such a, it is a very niche game, but it's a very, it's a very fun game. So <laughs> this isn't a spoiler, really, because I guess the game is pretty clear about telling you about it but i guess you're best friends with dragon quest 2's end boss <laughs> yeah you're just kind of hanging out with his name is malroth and he's basically a human-ish inclination uh incarnation of malroth from dragon quest 2 who is you know the kind of the six four arm demon however many arms it is from the second game is real so and so to take down but yeah he's just uh, hanging out with you and uh, he has no memories he doesn't know what he's doing there doesn't know who he is and he has these voices telling him, like, oh, it is your nature to destroy, blah, 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 blah. And it's just, like, why is he there? Why is he hanging out with you? What's his deal? Well, you have to find out. That's what you play for. Does it have any other fun references to the Dragon Quest legacy? I mean, it must. Oh, it, ha- it has tons. I mean, like, one thing I really love about it, and is it just such a, a Dragon Quest strength in, in, in general, is just how much you interact with monsters and how... A lot of monsters can become like, you know, part of your town, part of your uh, story. Uh, I, I just love the way Dragon Quest does that. And that's that's a, a thing in Dragon Quest Builders 2 as well. As a Dragon Quest fan, I'm really curious. Uh, a Dragon Quest fan that I don't think plays that much Minecraft. Like, what about this game speaks to you? Is it just that it has a Dragon Quest world and therefore that's enough? Um, it... It, the Dragon Quest world, of course, does help a tremendous bit. Um, I've always liked the alternative stories they have going on. Like, of course, the first game was what would happen if the hero had agreed to, to partner with the Dragon Lord. I think that was a very intriguing story. Uh, the second story, like I just said, is why is the bad guy from Dragon Quest 2 hanging out with you? Um, <laughs> but I think I, I also like, like I said, I do enjoy building games. But I think what makes Dragon Quest Builders especially compelling is the fact that yes you are building but you are building using tile sets from the games and meeting characters from the games and i just think the combination works really really well so it's kind of like fan service basically it's it's a lot of fan service but really good fan service oh there's nothing wrong with that i mean i end up playing plenty of games that are based entirely around fan service like super robot wars (laughs) there you go exactly It's, it's like my super robot wars yeah, I, I mean, God knows I'm not immune to this. And this is another thing that Final Fantasy does a lot, too, where they just try and plug Final Fantasy into various genres. Somebody asked us about Final Fantasy Explorers not too long ago, mm-hmm. which was just Final Fantasy, but it's Monster Hunter. Yeah, and it didn't work out quite as well. Um, well, I mean, I mean, when you just stick it on the, the DS and the graphics aren't nearly as good and it's a bit shallower than yeah. Monster Hunter... I think that's the kicker with all these Monster Hunter clones is that none of them are as deep 
or as well presented as Monster Hunter. So it's really hard to right. kind of top that. I mean, but that's a that's another conversation for another time. Uh, I do wonder if that's like not a problem that's going to be facing DQ builders too. Is that it's forever just going to be seen as a reskinned kind of Minecraft knockoff? Um, it's it, I don't know. I think it's very different from Minecraft. Like, it's hard to explain unless you unless you play it for yourself. But um, for lack of a better way of putting it, I would say whereas Minecraft is more underground. Uh, Dragon Quest Builders is more about the overworld. And, of course, it is more story-focused than Minecraft. But uh, I, I never really thought that exploration in Minecraft was particularly deep, partially because the world is procedurally generated, whereas Dragon Quest Builders games, everything is there for you to visit. And it's, you know, finding and exploring these these locations set out for you is just as important as fighting monsters or building. Yeah, I think a thing is that Minecraft these days especially is so mod-focused. Right, that too. Dragon Quest Builders 2 obviously does not have that aspect, uh, so it's a little less open-ended, a little less uh, free, and so perhaps its ceiling is slightly limited in its appeal to kind of hardcore Dragon Quest fans. I think it's going to have a harder time kind of breaking out of its particular niche. Yeah, it might. And uh, one thing also that it has over Minecraft is it just looks really good. Oh, it does look good. Uh, I like the style of the art a lot mm -hmm. more than Minecraft. Uh, I, there are a ton of rumors about Minecraft Steve or whatever being in Super Smash Brothers, and all I could think was, no, God. Yeah, I, hate <laughs> I don't that. know how they would do that. It's like, okay, uh, they gave um, expressions to Mr. Game & Watch, but uh, it'd be a, a challenge to do it with Steve. I think Steve is, I know that Steve is the, you know, the face of a generation, right? Like, <laughs> I go uh, on Reddit, face. I see memes all the time on Reddit about how that moment when your big brother uh, installed all the mods in Minecraft, and I'm like, I'm just going to ignore the whole growing up with Minecraft thing and keep going with my life. But <laughs> the character of, the character of Steve is just kind of like, eh, this is a freaking block with a pickaxe, come on. Yeah, but uh, he's, uh, I guess he means a lot to some kids the way that I guess Pac-Man means a lot to some parents of ours who grew up in the 70s, you know? <sighs> I guess. But uh, with DQ Builders too, at least the characters are appealing looking. Yes, they definitely are. Uh, the monsters too look really good. So you mentioned that the story missions can get a little repetitive? A little bit. Um, I found it was a problem in the second island, which was like a, a mission where you build three bars like one after the other after the other and one one bigger than the next and even though like there comes a point where your uh you, where your townspeople like once you lay down a blueprint they can join in and build which is really cool uh i kind of got a little bit like worn down by that chapter but you know it helps to go back to your to your home base and and see what's up because there's always something to build over there and there's the smaller islands to do scavenger hunts on and look for dogs so there's always something to do that's just can take your mind off things for a little while, let you reset and say, okay, I'm ready to get back to the story. I will say that one of my favorite kind of games is the one where I can have my own kind of customized house. Oh, yeah, so you might like this after all. Well, I think the thing is I don't necessarily want to build it from scratch. <laughs> Not block by block? I think I, I kind of like when I have a shell to start with mm -hmm. and I have a world that feels alive and kind of interesting. I think my ideal is walking down a country road, passing by some NPCs, seeing an interesting quest in the distance, and then I walk through the gate to this house that is kind of a rundown empty shell, and I, ha I can like slowly but surely unlock different ways to start improving it bit by bit until ultimately I have this beautiful flourishing estate versus right. starting from the ground up. I did that with... Uh, Fallout uh, New Vegas I mean no, Fallout 4 but in Fallout 4 I always had something to start with where like mm -hmm. I would take over a gas station and I would build right. that up or I would take over the lighthouse and build kind of a fortress around it it it, it was kind of in that respect it was kind of like what I was looking for versus just well let's lay a foundation and start going yeah see Dragon Quest Builders and Minecraft are very much like start with the foundation uh, unless you want to lay down a blueprint 
and start from there somehow. But that's not quite the same thing as what you're talking about. And I mean, yeah, I get it. It's interactive Legos. And I mean, how many kids just love the idea of like, oh, I can just sit in this this sandbox forever and just play with all the unlimited pieces, right? Exactly. And there are a lot of pieces to play with. Yeah, exactly. And I do like that you can just go back to your island at any time and just noodle around and build things and mess around and interact with the environment. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. You can't with the first chapter, but afterwards, yes. So what did you end up building? What did I end up building? I actually built like this silly little here's the thing about me and building i enjoy doing it but i never make anything too fancy I'm, i always go for for like simpler more rustic and, and cozy stuff like i on my island i built uh once my farmer settled in i built like this little like kind of little town on the prairie thing going on where they had like the log cabins and stuff uh i thought that was kind of fun and um one thing i actually did wind up building that i really enjoyed and this was kind of from a blueprint so it was more story oriented but one of the bars you build um, called the Silver Bar. It is, as the name suggests, like a pub, a bar, but it has a swimming pool. And it's like, oh, man, I love to swim and I love pools. So I am just like, oh, I am all about building this pool. And I did. And I had fun with that. So do the monsters just kind of wander by? Do they go in your swimming pool or whatever? <laughs> uh, I don't think there were any monsters to go in my swimming pool during that chapter. Uh, that particular town has a golem in it that you have to help out, and he's just kind of the town's mascot. Uh, but um, no, I didn't have any monsters in my pool. But the uh, the uh, bar- the bardsmaids and the uh, the miners all kind of had like swimming swimming suits and stuff, and they all enjoyed the pool. <laughs> I just I, I like the idea of slimes being a flotation device or something. <laughs> you know, that's a good point. Like this is you can swim in this game. And uh, you can build, like, kind of a flotation ring. And I haven't built one for myself. I haven't really needed one. But uh, I don't think it's shaped like a slime. And I'm actually a little disappointed to hear to, to think about that. Are the slimes actually, or the monsters in general, like, how much of a presence do they actually have? Do you see them just kind of everywhere wandering around, like in Dragon Quest, Monsters Joker? Pretty much, yeah. They they are around. Um, on the overworld, they're everywhere. Uh, there's a lot of monster NPCs to talk to who help you with quests and stuff. Uh, the first town you build, Furrowfield, is um, interesting because the plot of the game is that, uh, for some reason that you don't understand at first, uh, Hargon from Dragon Quest II has been slain, but his the quote-unquote children of Hargon are ruling the world somehow, some way, and one of their most uh, firm decrees is you are not allowed to build, you are not allowed to create uh, that includes fixing, building, farming, nothing. As soon as you kind of start making trouble in that first town, uh, Furrowfield, uh, the, there's a pastor in charge of the area who's uh, – uh, he's an enemy from the game. Um, I forget the precise name of the enemy, but he is uh, one of Hargon's followers from, from Dragon Quest II. And uh, his, he calls himself Pastor Al. But, <laughs> but he is a, a monster in your town that at first he's like kind of a, a bad guy and is like – you know, Hargon will punish you for all this building, blah, 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 blah. But that eventually he softens up and, you know, becomes part of your town as much as anyone else. Yeah, I I would love it if you could have the, the actual monsters in Dragon Quest as pets. <laughs> yeah, me too. It, it makes me think of one of my single biggest r- wishes for Pokemon. And I hope they do this someday. They, mm-hmm. I mean, they do it a little bit in Sun and Moon where you can look inside uh, the Pokeballs and see the little monsters kind of dancing around. I think it's called like Pokemon and me oh. or something like that. But, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, you can decorate them. But what I really want is basically my own Pokemon ranch. Yeah, they kind of trend towards that a little bit in uh, Let's Go with the, the park where you keep your Pokemon that you transfer from Pokemon uh, Let's Go. Sorry, from Pokemon Go. But there's nothing really fancy about it. It's not a place you can, you know, make your own or make it more homey for your Pokemon. So, yeah, I see where you're coming from. That'd be a great idea. Yeah, I would love to have a ranch where I could just release up to 10 Pokemon that I really like and just have them wandering around and I can interact with them. And Mm -hmm. I think that that would be a fantastic uh, addition to a game like Sword and Shield. I agree. That would be really cool. And it makes sense, right, especially if they have those wild areas where the Pokemon are all kind of wandering around. Like, theoretically, mm-hmm. you could do something like that, right? 
Oh, absolutely. But who who knows? Maybe we'll get maybe we'll hear about something about uh about that like closer towards the game's release. Yeah, still time. Then everybody can complain about the animations there too. <laughs> they can complain about the trees there. Ultimately, why should RPG fans pick up Dragon Quest Builders too? Well, like we were just discussing, if you do not like building games whatsoever, uh, it might not be for you. Uh, I would still say, by all guilty. means, give the... What's that? Guilty. Say guilty? <laughs> I would still say, give the demo a try. You might even wind up liking it. I have heard from people who are like, oh, I don't like building games. I don't like Dragon Quest that much, but I like this game, this series a lot. Um, but I still feel like it's still a good experience for RPG fans, because if you want to keep your building simple you can if you want to build something really stupidly complex you absolutely can and actually when you load up the game you'll see like uh examples from other people of the stuff they've built and some of the stuff is just absolutely mind-boggling but um there's still even if you don't really want to focus a ton on building there's still a lot of adventuring uh a lot of talking to npcs a lot of trying to puzzle out the story uh yeah there's uh there's still something here for rpg fans in general like the more people who want a more straightforward action RPG experience, by all means. Uh, I will say the combat isn't extremely elegant, so don't be looking for any sort of massive depth as far as the battle system goes, but you, you might still enjoy yourself quite a bit. Okay, that's Dragon Quest Builders 2, which we gave a 4.5 on the site, out now on Nintendo Switch and PS4. By the way, like, very quickly, kind of a TLDR, how much worse has the Switch version run than the <laughs> PS4 version? <laughs> I actually just wrote something that's on our site right now about what you should buy, PlayStation 4 versus Switch. And honestly, it runs fine on the Switch. You are looking at 30 frames per second versus 60, of course. Um, I did not notice any major slowdown by any means. Um, of course, there's less uh, lighting effects. Uh, the game doesn't really quite look quite as polished as the PlayStation 4 version. Uh, the transparency is defaulted, sorry, the water transparency is defaulted to be a little bit lower than on the PlayStation 4. But I think the trade-off, this is a, a, another one of those situations where you get, like, the trade-off with the portability of the Switch. And given what a, a good game Dragon Quest Builders 2 is to relax with, if you want, especially if you want to spend a lot of time building, uh, I think the trade-off is worth it to go with the Switch. But if you are the kind of person who plans to play docked, uh, don't even bother wasting your time. Just go with the PlayStation 4 version, which just looks fantastic. All right, thanks, Nadia. Let's move on to my preview of Fire Emblem Three Houses, which you can find over on the site. Uh, so the TLDR of that one is, yeah, <laughs> it's real good. And I think it is getting more hype than I could have ever imagined. I think the excitement around three houses is kind of off the hook actually i'm really surprised yeah i guess our fears about it just kind of fizzling out were unfounded i never thought that it would entirely fizzle out but i think it helps that there's like nothing to talk about right now <laughs> and people are just really ready to play this i think i would call this the octopath effect yeah i was gonna say it's our summertime rpg it, so originally Fire Emblem Three Houses was supposed to come out back in like March. And oh, right. Yeah. It, the, in being pushed back, it left kind of a gaping hole in the Switch's lineup. Really, we didn't mm -hmm. get anything for six whole months, right? You're right. And it a little bit slow. I think it did it a whole, huge service. Not only is it a lot more polished, I think, it's mm -hmm. looking really, it's a very polished game, actually. Uh, looks really great on both the TV and on handheld. Very, like, an appreciable graphical upgrade. Feels chock full of content and all that. But if mm -hmm. it had come out, you know, back in the earlier part of the year, it might have risked being drowned out. Uh, and uh, instead, it's being celebrated. That's good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very good-looking game. And I am actually... I know we're talking about, like, 200 hours worth of content or something crazy like that, but I am kind of glad... Uh, that they are giving us all three stories in one game instead of expecting us to buy three separate stories. Because that's what kind of intimidated me and kept me fr away from uh, Fire Emblem, whatever the last generation was called. All right, Fire Emblem Fates. The yes. game where nobody knew what the heck was going on with the three different versions. And so there exactly. were about a billion guides just trying to explain what exactly it meant. <laughs> and then people like me said, oh, well, I think I'll give it a pass anyway. Yeah. 
Now, Fire Emblem Fates gets kind of a bad rap, I think. Uh, I really... I Okay, so I thought Birthright wasn't very good, and apparently mm-hmm. Revelation is kind of a... just a little bit of a letdown, ultimately. Like the, I think Conquest is ultimately the best one. I think just every the thing that's stuck in everybody's memory is that uh, Fates has a bad story and nobody likes Corrin. <laughs> Poor Corrin. I kind of like him. Uh, I, her. Corrin is a her, her in my world. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Anyway, so yeah, Three Houses. I think people were ready for it to kind of get back to basics. And mm-hmm. they don't really get to back to basics. If anything, they try to go big. And maybe right. that was the right answer on the nintendo switch i you, you've heard me vetching over and over and over again about like ah, oh, they're they're going with this stupid romance crap and mm-hmm. i wish they would focus on the tactics and uh, what is this battle academy nonsense why is it trying to be persona and i guess uh i gotta say that it works pretty well actually <laughs> <laughs> they were like oh we'll show cat and they did it's like oh really cat well <laughs> But so the basic idea is that you start out, you get recruited to become a professor at this academy. You join one of three houses, which everybody's already talking about. One of them is the Blue Lions with Dimitri, Mm -hmm. which exists. Uh, (laughs) Which exists. There is the Black Eagles with uh, this blonde-haired gal that I thought was kind of attractive. So I (laughs) I was like... Oh, you're a fascist, but eh, but, oh, but you're you know, cute. You're cute. I think I'll join your house. Also, <laughs> supposedly, she, I, I think that she's one of the same-sex romances, uh, which same-sex romances were previously leaked in a, a mm-hmm. like a dump, an info dump somewhere. But uh, Nintendo confirmed to us that same-sex romances will definitely be in there, and she seems to really kind of have. Uh, be attracted to my character, which is funny because my character is completely expressionless and has exactly <laughs> two moves. She either nods without changing her expression whatsoever, or she kind of reaches out her hand like, yes. And Maybe it's really funny. Like, just never expression never changes at all. Sometimes she just kind of like shakes her head a little bit like she's this weird Muppet thing. <laughs> wow, that's a... That's an interesting uh, way they went with uh, considering with uh, Robin and, um, as you said, Corrin. But of the three houses, it seems like the Golden Deer are the most popular because everybody's thirsty for the head of uh, the Golden Deer house. And it seems they're the best characters. And I was talking to somebody from Japan and they were saying that the Japanese response is extremely strong. And apparently Golden Deer has the best missions and the best map design. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. Uh, followed by Blue Lions, followed by Black Eagles. So that may be why I'm feeling a little let down by the map design so far. <laughs> oh, that would explain a few things, I guess. So the general flow in the early part of the game is, so you have this calendar, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a little intimidating at first, but you, you get the hang of it pretty quickly. You just are going through the, the, the month, and you can explore the academy and when you're exploring the academy, you're taking on fetch quests and you're interacting with characters. Maybe you can cook or maybe you can mm-hmm. go fishing or something like that. It's, Ooh, fishing. it's a very big, it's a very big environment. Uh, you can recruit characters to your house. Uh, I don't know if this is permanent or not, but uh, if you hit the right stats, you can get them into your party and oh. have them join you. So you can kind of snipe people away that you really like i've been trying but it seems like the stats are pretty high because i've only been able to get one so far ah yeah keep on going keep on going but and then at the end of every month you go and you have a battle and the battle is story based and you can uh and that's where the kind of the story progresses so basically Mm -hmm. the the month is spent building up your character and then at the end of the month battle simple mm-hmm. that is kind of interesting it does remind me a little bit of uh, kind of a, a longer game persona yeah i mean a little bit but in persona the the you have a lot more freedom over when you decide you want to go into a dungeon versus right, in this yeah. game where it's like fixed at the end of every month you're going into a fight unless you decide to grind so i want to add an addendum to my preview uh apparently in hard mode there is no grinding 
Oof. Yeah, so... Hard mode is not for me, then. Yeah, so I think that... uh, I already mentioned that it's trying to make everybody happy, seemingly. Uh, Mm -hmm. It seems as if hard mode and classic is going to be, like, there for the the hardcore. And so I'm kind of glad that it exists. Right, yeah. Uh, But they also have the casual mode, of course. Yes, they do have the casual mode. So here's the interesting thing about Three Houses, and it's a big deal. Um, They don't have the weapon triangle in this one. Right, yes. And so in previous games, going back to, ironically, Genealogy of the Holy War, which was the game that introduced it, and this game is very heavily based on kind of Genealogy of the Holy War's concepts and kind of the backstory and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The basic idea of the weapons triangle is that, you know, Sword beats axe, axe beats lance, lance beats sword, right? Right. And if you run afoul of somebody with a weapon triangle advantage, probably they're going to kill you. There's a good chance. Unless you're really overleveled or you have like some kind of massive stats advantage or something. So yeah, that goes away. And in taking out the weapon triangle, it naturally makes the combat a lot more stats focused. And so your individual characters are a lot more autonomous and a lot less susceptible to dying. And as a consequence, uh, healing and sustainability is a lot more important, but also the actual tactics and positioning of the units is a lot less important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's an interesting trade-off right there. Yeah, so I think that there are is a good side and a bad side to this. Right. The bad side is that it makes the maps seem a little bit less complex. It makes the tactics a, lo- a little less important. And therefore, the maps, at least the maps that I've been playing, I've been pretty easily been able to roll up into a death ball and just (laughs) grind my way through enemies (laughs) until I got to the end. And then bada bing, I'm done. Right. Yeah, I like the term death ball, though. Yeah, I mean, that's what you are. You're a little ball of death. Uh, I actually kind of took it from StarCraft because that's what it is. It's like you have the still. The Marines and the medics and uh, everything just kind of coming as a death ball. but (laughs) Like a a cohesive unit, basically. Yeah, pretty much. I like that. But the good side, I think, and maybe something that people will like, is that the margin for error is a lot higher. Mm Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, So if you F up and you leave your character out there and you're playing on classic mode, you're not just going to freaking lose a character immediately and be like, well screwed great okay yep that's the end of that (laughs) yeah Um, so there is that and i will say this as you advance the margin of error starts to go down and if you just get cavalier about your positioning of your characters or you just rush in they can get blitzed they can be overwhelmed and they can be killed right so it's not exactly a cakewalk no uh the first i would say the first real appreciable difficulty jump is Mm -hmm. when you fight this big monster and this is a monsters are a thing in three houses and they're kind of interesting they take up multiple squares and Mm. they uh, can do area of effect damage and they have multiple bars of health I think the one that I fought had like 150 health and it was actually like I was sweating that one out because I was like, oh crap, I'm going to lose characters. This is like actually a little bit hard. Careful, careful. And I was feeling a little under leveled for it. So yeah. Yeah. Don't you just love those, uh, those multiple health bars where you're like watching it tick down. You're like, wait a minute. Why is the underside yellow? Oh God, it's still going. (laughs) Well, no, it was like, ah, I took you out easily. Uh, using my special, you're back. Oh, crap. And you have even more health? <laughs> crap. Oh, and you're doing a giant area of effect attack? Crap. <laughs> we have angered the beast. And then I took it down again, and its health replenished again, and it oh had even God. more health this time. And I was like, ah, oh, dang it. And also, so, more guys were coming in from behind. So it's not a cakewalk in that sense. <laughs> wow, that's uh, good times. And this was after a relatively long level as well, where, like, you have to kind of wind your way all the way around until you finally get right. to the, the boss of the level. But And I think you mentioned to me on Slack, there's no save scumming, is there? There is no save scumming, as per tradition. You just have to kind of bookmark it. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
Mike like was like, oh my God, you're comparing it to Final Fantasy Tactics? Okay, it's not Final Fantasy Tactics in the sense that it has like a job <laughs> system or whatever. But it does right. put more emphasis on the character customization, I feel, in the sense that when you're, uh, you can equip things like uh, weapon arts, which are unlocked by building up certain uh, kind of weapon proficiencies. So mm-hmm. if you take the time to put a lot of points into sword, you're going to unlock combat arts for sword that you can equip. And pretty soon you'll have a lot of combat arts and you have to kind of decide how you want to build up your character, what your focus is. You have a lot more freedom, I feel, to kind mm-hmm. of customize your characters. So in previous Fire Emblem games, you you could kind of do a lot with characters, especially in Fates. I, I feel like you could make them into a lot of different classes. In Three Houses, at least at the outset, all of your characters are kind of generic. I mean, they have right. they have starting weapons, they have starting abilities, and it's kind of like heavily hinting as where as to where you should take them. Right. And the game will has like tutorialized elements where the character will come to you and be like, "Hey, I really think that I should be a cavalry." You should definitely be putting points into that. I think you're going to be a foot soldier. Yeah. And you're like, well, I want you to be a mage. <laughs> no, not a mage. No, no, I don't want to be. A- Man, if I was like, if I lived in a fantasy like school like that and, you know, I wanted to be cavalry and, you know, no, you're going to be a mage. I'd be so pissed off because it's like that's the class I would least want to be as a mage. It's a little intimidating at first, actually, because so in classic Fire Emblem, you know, you get your Pegasus and you get your cavalry and Mm -hmm. you get your archer and you're like, okay, and they'll just promote you and we're all good, right? Right. Well, in this one, like you have to promote to the starting classes. Oh, right. Oh, that is different. Because they're the beginner, intermediate and advanced classes. And the beginner classes are like fighter, you know, axe guy. Yeah. (laughs) Soldier. Dude. (laughs) It, it reminds me a little bit of like what you had going on with characters like Donnie in Awakening, who was a quote unquote talent person, and you could you had a lot more freedom to develop him how you wanted versus the other characters. Yeah, so I've been kind of like going, okay, so I'm looking at your stats. Are you better as a Pegasus? Or are you better as a as a thief? Should I make you into an assassin? What, which direction should I take you? Uh, there's one gal who I'm pretty sure I should be turning into a Pegasus, but now she's an archer. and That's just where I am with her right now. And now That's two two sides of the coin. You got well, the Pegasus knight and the archer. I mean, she started with a bow and she has high speed. I mean, what do you want? Like, she's, <laughs> As long as she can double up with the, the archery abilities, I'm kind of good. And right. There's at least one character that I'm pretty sure is supposed to be riding a wyvern, so I'm kind of taking him Sweet. in that direction. And then I have two characters who are definitely cavalry. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you're, you're, you're making your way downtown. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to figure it out. I've got a couple of characters, like, uh, moved up into intermediate. You have to unlock the intermediate seals, and then once you can, once you hit level 10, you can start promoting people. And then mm-hmm. there are the advanced classes besides. Though there may be more after the time skip, which happens, which I'm not going to talk about because it's a little spoilery. But yes, there is definitely a time skip. There's always a time skip. Have you met any of the beast tri- tribes yet? Are they in this game? I have not seen any beast tribes. As far as I can tell, that is not a thing. Ah, uh, I want the Tigwall back, man. Sorry. <laughs> man. Uh, yeah, so when I take it as a whole, I think that it... I was worried that it was a little too complex at first, but the complexities have kind of sorted themselves out nicely. I'm starting mm-hmm. to get a handle on the game. Um, I wish that it were a little more tactics-focused with its map design, but I still think there's actually time in that regard for right. some really like smart, clever, interesting maps. Uh, I do miss the weapons triangle, but m- m- in a lot of ways... Uh, As somebody so snarkily pointed out in the comments of our article, this really is getting back to the earliest days of the original Fire Emblem, where they didn't have a weapon triangle, and it was a lot more stats-based. But the deal is, the original game was that it was a little bit of a slog, because it didn't have the weapons triangle. Right, of course. And you mentioned with the Shadows of Valencia, the same thing. Yeah, I like having the weapons triangle to make me think real hard, and to lower the uh, to make me think about character positioning to have maps almost be a little like a like a puzzle to make me feel like right. I'm exploring a dungeon as it were like I got plenty of games where 
the focus is all on character customization and the maps are just kind of rote. I liked, I, I thought that the intricate designs really made Fire Emblem special. So I'm really hoping mm-hmm. that as I continue through Fire Emblem Three Houses, that there is, you know, kind of a, a lot more interesting maps. Right. And well, I'm sure we'll be checking in before the game comes out. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, per- perhaps uh, I can only talk about so much, but the first embargo oh, is lifted uh, for July 12th. And then uh, the next embargo is a lot closer to the end of the month, uh, which is good because this game is huge. Oh, my God. Yeah, like I said, are looking at 200 hours, uh, three different stories. Yeah, and not only that, just getting through a calendar to a battle takes a little while. You got to go explore the academy, build up your characters and everything. It's not rote like the in previous mm-hmm. Fire Emblems where you would just go through the status screen and then on to the next mission and you're reading the story, right? Like. Right, the, the academy stuff really does matter, uh, at, at least in the in the early going. So it's kind of going, oh wow, yeah. There's a lot to do in this game. Uh, from what mm-hmm. I'm able to gather, uh, a single playthrough could was probably going to take you about fifty hours. Right. Yeah. That's what I was. That's what I've been hearing. And so, and there are three playthroughs, and there are major divergences at a certain point in the game between the three houses. Which, oh boy, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I need to crank through a single house playthrough and then hopefully jump into another house and see how much I get out of that as well. Right, of course. Yeah. Though I I guess maybe there might be a new game plus, I hope. I would hope so. I hope so for your sake. Yeah. So ultimately, very different in a lot of ways. But I mean... It is a strong callback to genealogy of the Holy War. And I think most important, I think that Fire Emblem and Pokemon had a real test. Could they transition to the current console generation? Could they feel big enough to be a console game and not just a handheld game? No disrespect Mm -hmm. to handheld games, but they are a different breed, right? Yes. People have different expectations for handheld games than they do for console games. And I think that... Fire Emblem has managed that transition brilliantly. And Good. I would not be surprised if this ends up being the best Switch game of the year based on my early impressions. I, uh, you know, my quibbles and my annoying vetching aside, I think this is a great game. Good. I'm looking forward to playing it. That's for sure. I, I, which house are you going to pick? Uh, dear, obviously. I mean, well, poor Dimitri. <laughs> Is he the, the dude who looks like every generic RPG like person ever with the blonde hair? I mean, all I have to do, all you have to do to lure me over to the dark side is to have blonde hair and big eyes, which <laughs> honestly is surprising. Uh, <laughs> I'm shallow just like, like that, I guess. I just like how the golden deer, it's a team instinct of the uh, of uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses. <laughs> I know, but cool. Team instinct isn't cool in Pokemon Go. But they're lovable. You don't need to be cool if you're lovable. Anyway, go check out my preview of Fire Emblem Three Houses over on the site. Okay, let's continue on to the mailbag, Nadia. So when I saw Ray's topic for last week, my first thought was Mega Man Command Mission, a game that mm. I always wanted to play on GameCube, but never had enough money to buy because I was poor at the time. I understand. But it wasn't very good, right? Like, it wasn't actually that great an RPG? Oh, it was the best RPG ever, Cat. No, it was um, it was, it was fine. Um, we discussed it a little bit on the show, and uh, it had some strengths and it had some weaknesses. But yeah, we went over that in the show. It was fun. It was fun enough. Kept me busy. All right, so let's go through some of the mailbag comments after this episode. Uh, the first one is from From Nisha. Uh, a cool game in this vein is the Twin B RPG, which I did not know existed. You wouldn't think a shoot 'em up would make a good RPG, and if this was the freewheeling PS1 JRPG Golden Age. But Twin B had already received several anime OVAs and radio dramas at this point, so the game more heavily leans into that aspect, with only minor references to his shooter roots in the form of special attacks and fruit drinking healing items. 
Hmm. The voice cast from the anime and drama return, and every line of or dialogue featuring the main cast is voiced, which is impressive for 97. It is breezy, mm-hmm. colorful RPG that you can finish in about a dozen hours. The plot is also simple enough for any intermediate student of Japanese to enjoy. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad that exists. Did you ever play Twinbee? Nope. It's uh, on the NES Switch Online. It's like one of the games that you can get. Oh, the, one of the uh, the free games? Yes. Oh, it's worth a try then. Yeah. Do you have NES Online? Yes, I do. Yeah, we're both suckers. <laughs> we totally are. But I also kind of like just playing uh, Zelda 2 whenever I want. I have to be honest. I can't believe I'm playing a subscription to have these freaking games on my Switch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't help myself sometimes. But at the same time, I do kind of love having like Mario 3 and such on my Switch. Exactly. I paid 20 bucks for it. Like I've spent 20 bucks on stupider things. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, But I did try to play Twin B, and honestly, it didn't really connect with me, even though I like shoot 'em ups a lot. I, mm-hmm. Maybe that's okay, blasphemy. Yeah. I don't know. It just felt a little... The, the cute-em-up aspect doesn't come through as much in the original NES version, and it feels right. a little slow. <laughs> it's, so we'll uh, find out if that's blasphemy, I'm sure. It reminds me of Xevious, actually. I, I think that's the name of the game, uh, which a lot of people consider like one of the most influential shoot 'em ups ever made, actually. But uh, as for me, I'm like, uh, yeah, it uh, doesn't really speak to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a B. So Drachmalius says, I think about the missed potential of Sonic Chronicles about once a year. I just got it day <laughs> one, very excited to finally have a Sonic RPG, but didn't play more than five hours since it got really boring and generic. So it goes. Man, Sonic Chronicles, I'm, I'm sure you guys talked about that on we the did. podcast. And Sonic Chronicles, I mean, it should have been a slam dunk, right? It was a freaking Bioware. <laughs> it was a match made in something. <laughs> Yeah, everything just seemed to go wrong with that game. And it was really one of the biggest disappointments because I do remember how excited everyone was. Like, wow, there's a Sonic RPG finally, and it's, it's by Bioware? That's amazing. And then uh, the the rumor is that EA bought the bought Bioware around that time and gave, like, nothing for uh, Bioware to finish the game because uh, something Ray brought up is that, well, it was a, a 3DS game, which, for all we know, EA just wasn't that interested in how well or or how badly it did so it was like well just finish it who cares what it looks like who cares what it sounds like that's really a shame because i I would have liked a decent uh sonic rpg freaking ea (laughs) (laughs) seriously i saw a post recently that really kind of gave me thought pause and made me a little bit sad and made me Mm. wonder how games would be different if they had happened they said Mm. microsoft should have been the one to buy bioware and dice and respawn and yeah my first thought was oh my god that would be an incredible like first party lineup and microsoft would give them all the resources they needed and they wouldn't be ea (laughs) and they wouldn't be ea i mean could you imagine could you imagine if bioware was a microsoft an xbox exclusive that would be so awesome that would be pretty great and microsoft even though uh, i know that like a flagship studio for xbox wouldn't that be amazing that would have been great because Microsoft is pretty hands-off with its first-party developers, especially now. But, you know, even though Rare didn't always do great under Microsoft, at least they're still there, you know? I mean, we would definitely have KOTOR. We would have another KOTOR yeah, right now. Exactly. We, we would have games that just do not exist right now. Oh, man, what a tragedy. It is. It is very sad. I can see why that would be just one of those... Like, one of those things you read on the internet that makes you feel more sober. Man, now I'm sad. We really do live in the <laughs> darkest timeline. We kind of do. Somewhere in another timeline, Al Gore won the 2000 election, and Bioware was a Microsoft Xbox 360 exclusive. And that we could have avoided all of this horror. I would think so. I would hope so. Uh, Christopher McDougall says, I also really enjoyed this week's topic. Little Ninja Brothers was a mainstay of my childhood, even though I never got to play the game. I always wanted to, though, because Culture Brain advertised it heavily in GamePro. They had a running comic for it in Flying Warriors, another Culture Brain game that I never really wanted to get, or that I really wanted to get. Retronauts should do a retrospective on Culture Brain's US, NES, and SNES games. They are fascinating and innovative, albeit janky. There is nothing like Baseball Simulator 1.000 at the time. That might have been <laughs> Baseball Simulator 1000, but the way it's kind of spelled is 1.000, so I don't know. Yeah. I think I remember Flying Warriors. 
Like, I seem I to do. recall the comic for that one. I might have to look this up. Uh, it's definitely something I remember seeing either, like, for Rent or the comic or the ads or all three. Uh, but, yeah, it's just one of those games that needs to in the back of your mind one way or the other the whole time. Acts of Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on all of the social media channels. I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is on Twitter at Nadia Oxford. And follow us on U.S. Gamer Net. Subscribe to our newsletter. We will be back next week where we will, I don't know, I haven't actually decided what we want to talk about next week. But. <laughs> Fly about the seat of our pants here. Seems like the time is ripe to be able to continue the console RPG quest. Um, I, I'm so knee-deep into Fire Emblem. I think I have to throw basically everything all the time I have. So I might have to put the Final Fantasy VII playthrough on ice for a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But I do want to finish it. And yeah. I'm looking to get some guests on the show as well uh, and have a little bit of fun with that. But Okay, so as usual, we'll be back next week thanks to nadia thanks to me i'm gonna thank myself i don't know why i'm thanking myself you should but thanks for listening we'll be back next week until then happy adventuring (laughs)